Our gracious Father, you are so good. And our praise will ever be on your lips while we're here in this body, in, on this planet, Lord, you give us so many things that make you worthy of our worship. Not because we're in the mood for it or because our circumstances dictate it, but because you are worthy. Help us to always keep that in our minds and in our hearts. And our worship doesn't end with singing songs. Father, it continues as we turn our hearts and minds to your word. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we are gathered to reflect on a powerful and transformative event that we call the Transfiguration. It's going to be described in our passage today. Now, in verse 27, Jesus said, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And I mentioned this last week. There are some who take this passage, this verse, completely out of context, and they use it as a text to say that Jesus has already returned. And that he returned, right? So he, he died, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and then returned before all of the apostles died. Because that's who he was talking to in this moment, and that is not the case. If Jesus had already returned, we would be having a very different service this morning. Right? Be a better preacher, probably a little bit longer hair, nicer clothes, on a throne. Not me, on a stool. Because we wouldn't be here. Um, but that, that's because one of the things that I, I tell you guys often, context, context, context. When you pull a verse or a word or a line out of scripture without the context of the passage it's in, the book it's in, the test, or the, sorry, the, content, the, uh, the, the passage, the chapter, the book, the testament, and the Bible as a whole, it's really easy to misinterpret something. And that's why we don't do it. When you put the context of verse 27 with the rest of this chapter, what you're going to find is that what Jesus is referring to is those who would get a glimpse of God's kingdom when they saw him transfigured on the mountain. This extraordinary moment offers us some beautiful insights into his divinity and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So let's read our passage and then we're going to pick it apart. It came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with him, James and John, were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Sometimes I really wish I had James Earl Jones' voice. Wouldn't it be so good if I could say this line with that kind of gravitas? I just don't have it. This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So back to verse 28. It came to pass about eight day, after about eight days, um, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. So as this passage unfolds, we witness Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on to the mountain to pray. Many times we see Peter, James, and John going with Jesus, like when he went to raise Jairus' daughter. Always took at least three people with him because according to the Old Testament law, all things must be established by two or three witnesses. One witness was not enough to confirm a matter, and you could not testify on your own behalf. So he always took the three with him. While he's in prayer, the appearance of Jesus' face changed. His clothes became, um, it, and it depends on your translations, right? His robe became white and glistening. Some translations will say it became bright as a flash of lightning. Uh, I think it's Matthew's gospel that records it, that it became whiter than any launderer could get it. Uh, just white. Now, Jesus is described like this in other places in Scripture. In Hebrews 1-2, and we're going to revisit this passage later, but in Hebrews 1-2, it says that he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his purpose or person. That Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory. That's a pretty amazing description. When you turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 1, there's a beautiful description of Jesus there in verses 13 through 16. And it says this, In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Some people take this like, oh, well, you know, God looks like an old man. Uh, no offense to any, you know, older folks whose hair is a little less pigmented than it used to be. Um, why do you think I shave my head? <laughs> right? If I let it grow out, there's this, this deep crevasse that exists in a beautiful little solar patch back there. Um, and, and, and all of that. And then, yeah, the beard is the beard. Um, I have beard wash. I do. It doesn't take away at all, but it's a little bit because if I don't do it, the beard is almost entirely white. Uh, and I'm only 47. That's because being a pastor is not stressful ever. Uh, right. So I'm not, I'm not teasing anybody. This choice, this look, right. This, it's not by choice. It's by vanity. Um, so just being honest. Um, but it, it, is, it is a choice. It's a choice to be vain, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit vain. Um, but white like wool, white as snow, speaks of his purity. Uh, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as refined in a furnace. His voice like the sound of many waters. 
He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And as we move into later portions of the book of Revelation, especially when you get up into chapter 20, 21, 22, in the new heaven and in the new earth and the new Jerusalem, there will be no sun. For the brightness of the glory of God will illuminate eternity. How cool is that? So this is not the only place we see it. That's why I say this is a glimpse of the kingdom of God. That's why verse 27, I tell you there's some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. That's what they're seeing. This is what Jesus will be like in eternity, in glory. It's going to be, ooh, it's going to be cool. Verse 30. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Some translations will say departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah, they appear also in glorious splendor. They talk about his death that was coming in Jerusalem. And in this dazzling manifestation, the disciples experienced a revelation of Jesus' true nature and his fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The presence of Moses and Elijah signifies the continuity between the Old Testament and the ministry of Jesus, underscoring the fulfillment of God's promises through him. It is often said, uh, well, okay, not maybe by everybody, but I've heard it multiple times, that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. People have to, we, we all, right, because we all can do this and have a tendency to do this. We have to get over the idea that there is some kind of split between the Old Testament and New Testament. That God is different in the Old Testament or New Testament. The, the biggest argument we get is that the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath. And in the New Testament, God is a God of grace. There are hundreds and hundreds of verses in the Old Testament that talk about God's loving kindness about his mercy, about his graciousness, right? That his, one of my favorites is in, in Lamentations chapter 3, that his, faith, his great faithfulness and his mercies are new every morning. That's in the book of Lamentations when, when Jeremiah is expressing his broken heart over the sin of Israel and the fact that God had told them they were getting taken into captivity over and over and over again, right? God throwing Adam and Eve out of the garden was an act of mercy, Something we don't always think about. But they fell into sin by eating the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of, or the tree of life, they would have then spent eternity in that state. But he wanted to give them an opportunity to be redeemed, so he threw them out of the garden. So they couldn't eat from that tree in their fallen state. The Old Testament is filled with mercy. Yes, there's wrath. Oh, but is there wrath in the New Testament? One of the topics Jesus talked about more than anything else was hell and eternal judgment people don't like to hear about that but it's true and if you really want to get a glimpse of god's wrath just go read the book of revelation there's judgment for those of us who believe in christ we have been freed from that praise god but it doesn't change that his mercy and judgment are seen throughout scripture there's a, a bible teacher that i love chuck missler 
And uh, he used to start his Bible program. I don't know if he still does. Uh, but 66 books by 40 authors written on three continents over the course of over 1,500 years. And yet it's one account, one story. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. No contradictions, no ambiguities, right? I mean, there's things we don't necessarily know, things that haven't been told us, but it's one. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, that is seen. Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus to bear witness to the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in the person of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, Moses represents the law, and he was, as he was the one who received the law of God um, from God on Mount Sinai. Elijah represents the prophets, being one of the most prominent prophets in Israel's history. Their presence with Jesus affirmed that he is the fulfillment of, of the law and the prophets, as he himself declared in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Therefore, the appearance of Moses and Elijah alongside Jesus and at the transfiguration signifies the continuity and the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan through the person of Jesus Christ. Also, as a bit of a side note, uh, there are many who believe this, and I'm one of them, that Moses and Elijah appearing here with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is why Moses and Elijah will be the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. I believe that wholeheartedly. There are other theories about who the two witnesses might be, and that's fine. We're not told. I would never really argue about it. It's not worth it. I believe they will be the two witnesses because they appeared with Jesus here and because they represent the law and the prophets. And that is what is going to witness against the world during the tribulation. But that is another topic. So we'll move on to verse 32. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke is kind enough to tell us that Peter did not know what he was saying. Have you ever been woken out of a deep sleep and been like startled? I was, it was a couple weeks ago and I, Hannah probably won't remember because she was sleeping on the couch. I fell asleep in my chair, and I hardly ever fall asleep at night. Well, in my chair. I fall asleep later when I go to bed um, sometimes. But I very rarely fall asleep in my chair. It's just not what I do. Um, and I fell asleep, and, and I wasn't like, I was out. And my wife came and woke me up. And so much so that it, it like startled me. And you ever like, you know, when you surprise a baby, and the baby goes, goes like, Bleh! that's what I did. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was going on. I was thankful that the first wife I saw was my wife because otherwise I might have been weird. And it, but it was just weird because I, I was so startled. Now imagine waking up to the glory of God in front of you. That might be a little shocking to the system. right? It might hit you kind of weird. And so they're half asleep. They wake up to this awe-inspiring sight. And Peter goes, I've got an idea. Let's make, we'll make you a tent. What do you think? One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I'm thinking, 
right? And I don't know that Jesus would act this way in the moment, but I would. If he looked back and he's like, I'm sorry, guys, it's Peter. You know him, right? He's got issues. You know, he's telling Moses and Elijah, I'm a little embarrassed by his behavior, but it's okay. Right? Like you do for your kids in a restaurant when they throw stuff. One of my favorite things to do now that all my kids are older is when I see parents with young children and the children are having a complete and utter meltdown in a public place. One of my favorite things to go do is go up to them and go, it's okay. It happens to all of us. Right? My kids did that. You did that when you were a kid. Your kid's doing it now. And one day when your kid has a kid and they do it and you can laugh at them, it'll be okay. I just love to give that comfort to parents because they get so mortified when their kids behave like that. Right? They're kids. That's what happens. So I'm just wondering if Peter was like, or if Jesus was like, yeah, it's Peter. It's okay. Shh. I don't know. And we like giving Peter a hard time, don't we? Because he made a lot of mistakes. Right? When Jesus announced his death and resurrection, Peter pulled him aside and said, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Right? Oh, well, huh? Peter stepped out of the boat onto the water, started looking at the waves, and he sank. But who else stepped out of the boat? Peter's here with James and John. James and John don't say anything. And Peter's like, I got to do something. I'll build you a tent. Because he's Peter. And that's what Peter does. So let's, let's give him a bit of a break. I found a great quote from Winston Churchill that says, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no lack of enthusiasm. I like that. That was Peter, stumbling from failure to failure, but he kept being enthusiastic even when he was wrong. Verse 34. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of these things they had seen. The voice of God. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I have always wanted to audibly hear the voice of God. I may be the only one. I think it'll scare the tar out of me if he ever gives me that privilege. But I would love to hear the voice of God. One day we will. I'd kind of like to hear it here. I don't know that I'm going to get to. I'm not, I, I don't even ask Right? I usually get to hear the still small whisper in the back of my mind, but not the audible voice of God. So now you've woken up. Your master is shining as bright as the sun. Two people who have been dead for centuries are standing there having a conversation with him. You say something stupid. And then the voice of God, the cloud in shadows the mountain, the voice of God speaks from him and says, shut up and listen. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And notice they don't say anything else after that. Because they heard the voice of God. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This divine affirmation, it solidifies Jesus' identity as the beloved son of God and emphasizes the importance of heeding his word. 
The cloud that overshadows Jesus, Moses, and Elijah and the disciples in this moment is a manifestation of the presence of God. We see this in other places in Scripture. Um, the presence of God often accompanied by a cloud. That's what happened when they dedicated the tabernacle. It's what happened when they dedicated the temple. It's what happened to Moses on the top of the mountain as Israel traveled after the departure from Egypt, right? There was a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. A cloud often represents the presence of God. Um, additionally, the voice of God from the cloud saying, this is my son, whom I have chosen, listen to him, further confirms Jesus' identity and his authority as the beloved Son of God. The overshadowing cloud during the transfiguration underscores the divine nature of Jesus. And once again, the continuity of God's redemptive work throughout history. It also signifies the divine approval of Jesus' mission, and it serves as a pivotal moment in affirming his role as the long-awaited Messiah. This is important. It's very important. There are two times in the Gospels when God speaks from heaven, affirming Jesus' identity and his authority. Here, and after Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3.17, where it says suddenly, right, if you remember, Jesus went out, and, and John the Baptist said, I should be being baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, allow this to fulfill all righteousness. Not because Jesus needed to repent of sin, but so that his actions could never be called into question. And so he baptizes him, and when he brings him out of the water, a dove descends on him, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son, with who I am well pleased. And this carries significant theological and redemptive implications for us. In our study of God, in understanding the history of our own salvation, the theology of our own salvation. When God refers to Jesus as his beloved son, he is affirming the unique and divine nature of Jesus. The use of the term beloved emphasizes the deep love and special relationship between the father and son. What makes it all the more incredible is there are places throughout scripture where he refers to you and I as his beloved. Just let your mind run free with that thought. Oh, God loves you. Yeah, he loves you. I know that. Right? I love you. You're my church family. I love you all dearly. But Leah is my beloved. My kids, to a slightly lesser degree, are my beloved. The love I have for them, as much as I love you, it's different and it's bigger. And if that offends you, I, I don't think it will, right? Because I'm just trying to earn them brownie points. Valentine's Day is coming up, gentlemen, just in case you forgot. But it's different. So to say, oh, God loves you. Yeah, God loves everybody. But we are his beloved. Think about that. A term that he used for Jesus the Son, he uses for us. That's an incredible thought. Following that, God instructs his disciples, which include us, to hear him. 
directing us to listen to Jesus and to heed his teachings. All of the authority of who Jesus is and the definitive revelation of God to humanity is present there in Christ the Son. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets, but now he points to Jesus as the ultimate authority whose words are to be heeded and followed. Therefore, the statement, this is my beloved son, hear him, it serves as a divine endorsement of Jesus' identity, mission, and teaching. It underscores the centrality of Jesus and God's redemptive plan, and it becomes a command for you and I. This is not a suggestion. Talked about this a few weeks ago, that the commandments of God are not suggestions. It would be a really good idea if you don't murder people. No, do not murder. It's different. It would be a really good idea if you, you know, didn't lie to people. No, thou shalt not lie. He doesn't say, this is my beloved son. You know, guys, you should kind of pay attention to what he's saying. It's going to be important later. No, no. This is my son. Listen. Hear him. This is a command from our father. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, we're told this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had purged, when he himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's an incredible statement. Why do we listen to him? Because he's God. Because he died for us. Because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus told us this himself, but I'm going to get ahead of my notes. So what does this mean for us? Whenever we're studying a passage of scripture, we want to answer three questions. And this is the basis of what we call inductive Bible study. We answer three questions. What does it say? Translation. And you've heard me do this before. Sometimes I'll come upon a word and I'll be like, hey, our English translations put the word this way. Some translations do a little bit better. This is what the Greek word is. Our current English translation doesn't really do it justice. But we always want to know what it says. Then we want to know what does it mean. And we use interpretation and we have rules, uh, rules what we call hermeneutics, the rules of biblical interpretation. And there's a lot of them that I'm not going to rehash right now. But we always want to interpret a passage appropriately according to the context. But third, once we know what it says and we know what it means, which is all wonderful, if we don't take the words of God and then put them into practice in our lives, it's just head knowledge. Pastor Chuck used to use a quip that I loved. He said, knowledge will tell you that the little fuzzy creature with the white stripe down its back is a skunk. Wisdom tells you not to pick it up. It's great to have knowledge, but wisdom is the application of that knowledge to our lives. So how do we apply this? There's a lot of ways. I think I have five, if I remember. Yeah, I got five. Ready? This won't take 
Another 45 minutes tops. Number one, the glory of Jesus Christ. The transfiguration reveals the glory and the divine nature of Jesus. This event emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This is in line with the prophecy in Isaiah 42.1 where God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Why does that, how does that apply to us? That means Jesus is who he says he is, which means when we believe in him, we can be saved. That is the greatest application of scripture to any life that exists. Human. Right? You can tell your dog the gospel all you want. Doubt that your dog's going to receive Christ and get baptized. Um, doesn't mean your dog doesn't have a soul. I know. There's a big argument in Christian circles, right? Some, some theologians are like, animals don't have souls. They won't go to heaven. I have a beautiful little kitty that died a couple years ago. She's waiting for me. I believe that. I could very well be wrong. I can't prove it theologically or biblically, but the way she looked at me, I have a hard time believing she didn't have some kind of soul. That's not the point. But for human beings, I was about to go down a big rabbit trail. For human beings, knowing that Jesus is who he said he is means that when we believe in him, our salvation is real. Two, the importance of prayer. It sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? To say prayer is important. The transfiguration occurred as Jesus was praying. This highlights the significance of prayer in the life of the believer. And it's consistent with Jesus' teachings on prayer throughout the, um, throughout the Gospels, but especially, especially in Matthew 6.6. 6. I need to slow down. I'm in a hurry because I'm trying to get to the end. You guys are okay if I slow down? I'm going to slow down. It's consistent with Jesus' teaching on prayer. In Matthew 6.6, 6, 6, he encouraged us to have private, sincere and heartfelt prayer. In other places in Scripture, we are encouraged to pray together. That's why we're starting the prayer groups. We got one tomorrow morning. We got one Tuesday night, right? It's important for us to pray as individuals. It's important for us to pray together. Jesus demonstrates this for us. And if it was important for Jesus, being God, to spend time in prayer, how much more important is it for you and I? Right? That exponentially more important. Number three, the voice of God. The voice from the cloud at the transfiguration declared, this is my son, this is my beloved son, or this is my chosen one. Listen to him. This emphasizes the authority of Jesus and the need for us to listen to what he taught us. Jesus himself told us this in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I don't know about you. I want to be a wise human being, which means I want to hear God's word, and I want to put it into practice. Now, do I do that perfectly all the time? (laughs) No, 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 no. It doesn't mean it's not my goal. And it should be it for all of us. That's why we have to be in the Word. It's kind of hard to listen and obey if the book's not open. Number four, the presence of Moses and Elijah. We mentioned this earlier, that the presence of Moses and Elijah with Jesus underscores the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It points to Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which was confirmed in Matthew 5.17. But this is why it applies to us and why it's so important. Jesus being this fulfillment frees us from the need to try and earn our righteousness or earn our own salvation or earn the favor of God by our own works. This is magnificently huge for us as followers of Christ. I can't earn my salvation. It is a gift of grace. I can't make God love me more because I preached a better, right? If, if, to this day's, if today's sermon was better than last week, which I don't know, it doesn't mean God's going to love me more this week than he did last week. I kind of think he looks at me sometimes like the illustration I used earlier of Peter, like, oh my gosh, what did he say? Of course, he knew I was going to say that because he's God. Um, But there's nothing I can do to make him love me more. There's nothing I can do to stand before him as righteous. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, for by grace you are saved. And that is a gift of God. Hebrews 4.10 tells us this. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We enter God's rest by trusting in Jesus Christ, relying on his death and resurrection, relying on the grace of God that he gives to us as a free gift so we can be saved because we cannot do it on our own. And can you imagine the pressure that takes off of you when you walk in that freedom. When I was young, I tried. I thought I had to do this and that and the other thing. And if I messed up, I thought, oh, maybe maybe God doesn't love me now. Or I was, and I know I'm probably the only one, right? You ever try to make a deal with God? All right, God, I'll be really, really good this week if you just let me get that or let that prayer happen. Instead of going, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. But that's rest. If I have a beautiful day where I get up and I spend an hour in prayer, and my time of silence and solitude is beautiful, and as I read the word, I am just 
filled with the presence and the grace of God. And then I, I go to work, right? And maybe I have a meeting with somebody and, and just have this amazing time of helping encourage that person in their walk with Christ. And, and then I open the Bible and I spend three, four hours sitting in my office studying so I can prepare a scripture. And then I go home and I clean the house and I wash the dog and I make dinner and I put away all the laundry and my wife comes home and she's beaming because I'm just the perfect husband. Thank you, Amy. I was hoping somebody would laugh at that because it was meant to be very sarcastic, right? And all of that takes place and I go to bed that night. Then the next day I wake up cranky. And somebody, I get a phone call from somebody in the church and I don't want to answer it. Stinking people. Why are they always calling me? I should know why, but still, I'd never do that to you. Any of you, I promise. And then I get to work I don't want to work on my sermon. I want to fold the stupid bulletins. Which I'm getting much better at, by the way. I'm doing much better folding the bulletins. In case anybody's wondering, it's been a while since I've complained about it. And then, right, I'm on my way home and, and somebody honks their horn at me and I scream at them out my window, which I would never do. Not out the window, Not out the window no. Keep the windows up. Right? I go home, I ignore the dogs, I yell at the kids, which I, I don't usually do, and then I yell at my wife, and, and well, what did you make for dinner? Make your own dinner, woman! Do you know when I go to bed that night, God would have loved me just as much that night as he did the night before? That, my dear brothers and sisters, is grace. Because his love doesn't change for me based on how good I am or how bad I am. And that's really good for you and me. Number five, preparation for Jesus' death and resurrection. The conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah about Jesus' departure in Luke 9, 31 highlights Jesus' impending crucifixion and resurrection. This aligns with the prophecies about the suffering and glory of the Messiah in places like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16, which foretell his death and resurrection. Jesus being the fulfillment of these prophecies should encourage and build our faith in the trustworthiness of Scripture. Every prophecy that we can look at in Scripture that has come to pass should be very encouraging us for us for the ones that haven't come to pass. Because there's a bunch we're still waiting on. And man, they're going to be cool. As we close, the significance of the transfiguration extends beyond a mere display of Jesus' glory. It serves as a foretaste of the coming kingdom, a confirmation of Jesus' authority as the long-awaited Messiah. It also provides encouragement and confirmation for the disciples and us as we face the challenges and uncertainties that lie ahead. As we contemplate this profound event, let us consider its implications for our lives today. The transfiguration invites us to behold the majesty of Christ to recognize his fulfillment of God's redemptive plan and to heed his teachings. Just as the disciples were reassured and strengthened by this extraordinary encounter, we too can find reassurance and strength in the unchanging nature of our Lord, even amidst the trials and tribulations of life. I always like to close with questions. Well, not always, but typically. 
think it's good for us to think. You know, I'm going to tell you something, and I haven't said it in a while. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, it said the Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness, and then they searched the scriptures to make sure those things were so. I can't tell you how humbling and appreciative I am that you put your trust in me to tell you the truth when you're here on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or phone calls, texts, emails, whatever. But I'm a human being, folks. I am not perfect and I am not the authority. God is. His word is. I always want to encourage you. Go home. Open your Bible. Look up the scriptures. Listen to other good Bible teachers, because there's some really bad people out there that say they're Bible teachers. Don't listen to them. But listen to some really good Bible teachers. Get into the Word on your own. Study it for yourself. And if I make a mistake, come and tell me. Go, you know, I was listening to this sermon, or I was reading this passage, and I think when you said this on Sunday, it might have been a little off. And we'll talk about it. I won't get angry with you, because I promise you, I do not want to make a mistake. James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, for you will receive the stricter judgment. I don't want to make that mistake. So if I make a mistake, please tell me so I can repent of it and fix it. So don't just take my word for it. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. So to our questions. Have you listened to the voice of the Son of God and come to believe in his death and resurrection so you can one day behold his glory? If there's anybody here, anybody online, anybody who listens to this recording later and you've never given your life to Christ, today is the day. Don't wait. Repent of your sin. Receive Christ as Savior. Rest from your works. Number two. As a follower of Christ, and I like this question. This, this, I like this question. I borrowed it. But as a follower of Christ, are you open to the transformative power of encountering the divine presence of Jesus in your life? Right? And now, our first thing, because I, I read this as I was studying, um, and, and the first answer that came to my mind was like, well, of course I am. But am I always? Right? Sometimes, wow, you know what? I got a lot to do today. I, I don't need a transfiguration experience or I'm not going to get my work done. Or I can't be interrupted today. There's, there's just there's too much going on. Yeah. Do I really want to be interrupted by God whenever he wants to interrupt me? I want that. Right? But do I always want it? Number three, are we faithfully seeking to hear God's word spoken to us in the Bible and through the other ways, the Spirit may choose to speak to us and then by his grace, obey him. I love when people say, I just want God to speak to me. There you go. No, no, you don't understand. I want God to speak to me audibly. Read it out loud. And you know, sometimes there are questions we have that are so specific that, you know, there is no first Jason that tells me when I'm going to do this, when I'm going to do that, when I'm going to go here, when I'm going to go there. And the Spirit of God speaks in so many ways. We just have to listen 
and then always confirm it with what Scripture says. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on the transformative event of the transfiguration of your Son, we are humbled by the revelation of his power, the affirmation of his authority, and we thank you, Lord, for the clarity and the assurance this passage brings to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. May this inspire us to deepen our prayer life, seeking communion with you in the quiet moments of our hearts. Help us to listen to the voice of your Son, your Chosen One, our Savior, to heed his teachings with an open heart and obedient spirit. We are grateful, Lord, for your word from beginning to end, how it's fulfilled in our Savior. Guide us to study and understand the scriptures, recognizing the unity and purpose of your redemptive plan. As we carry the message of the gospel with us, may it strengthen our faith, prepare our hearts for the significance of Jesus' death and glorious resurrection, and grant us wisdom and discernment so we can apply the lessons from this passage to our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.